Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Uh, welcome, everybody, joining me here in the room. And welcome, everybody at home, joining the community. What do you know? Welcome, everybody, joining uh, at home. Make sure to mute yourselves here. Make sure to turn your phones off if you have them. And um, we'll start with a period of meditation. I'll give some meditation instructions and we'll uh, continue with the uh, addressing some of the questions that got brought up the other week when I asked for topics and uh, I'll choose one or two of those to reflect on tonight. So uh, find a way to sit that's upright and relaxed, a posture that feels suitable for meditation. Just a reminder that uh, discomfort is probably uh, useful in sitting meditation. It's part of what we're learning to to do is to be uncomfortable, one of the skills we're building. So I'm gonna find a way to be that's as comfortable as possible and then accept uh, whatever discomfort arises. As you're ready, allowing your eyes to be closed. Taking a moment to settle into the posture, to relax any places in the body that are feeling tense, softening, releasing around the eyes, the brow, cheeks, jaw. Breathing in, feel the sensations that the breath creates at the nostrils. And then as you breathe out, when you breathe out, try to soften the shoulders, the chest, the belly. Establishing an attitude of friendliness. 
What would it mean internally to be friendly to your own experience of your sensations? What would be a friendly, receptive, welcoming relationship to your breath, to your body? A friendly relationship to your emotions, any levels of joy or sorrow that may be present or visit during the meditation. Friendly, welcoming, accepting relationship. And even the mind the mind's tendency to plan and remember, to doubt and fear, crave and fantasize. What would be a friendly way to relate to your own mind's habitual tendencies, patterns, habits? We spend a few minutes as we settle into the mindfulness, present time awareness practice. We're simply bringing the attention to the sensations of the breath and attempting to let everything else be in the background, the thoughts, the sounds, even the other sensations in the body. We direct our full attention to the sensations the breath creates. Of course, the attention gets drawn from the mindfulness of the breath back into engagement, identification with what the mind's doing. Naturally, we're all on some level or another addicted to our minds, strung out on thinking 
rather than continuing to indulge this addiction, we abstain, we disengage, we come back to the breath. Not stopping the mind, but stopping being involved, stopping our identification with it. Let the thoughts be in the background. Come back to the breath.
can choose to stay with the breath. Keep disengaging from the contents of the thinking mind, coming back to the sensations the breath creates in the body. Quite a foundational aspect of our practice. Helps us to break our addiction to our minds. The Buddha's instructions on mindfulness continue beyond the breath, inviting us to become aware of our whole body. Sensations from head to toe. Body as the consisting of the four elements. body made up of all of the different parts from the hair and skin on the outside to all of the organs bones on the inside As we investigate and bring this friendly awareness, mindfulness into the body, we open to the second foundation of mindfulness, the feeling tone. First foundation is the investigation. What's happening right now? What am I feeling as the breath comes and goes, as my body sits still? What am I experiencing in the present time? And then the second level is the inquiry of what is feeling perceived as feeling pleasant? Or unpleasant or neutral? What are the feeling tones in the body, in the heart? We're at the sense doors of hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting. First and second foundation, the body, the feeling tones. And opening to the third foundation, the mind, rather than ignoring the mind being mindful of thoughts arising and passing, the process, the impermanent nature of thoughts. 
but also the content, becoming aware of what your mind is thinking about. My teacher, Ajahn Amaro, encourages to try to develop a unentangled relationship with your experience, an unentangled participation, he says, mindfulness, that is not tangled up in the experience, not identified with it, clinging to it. but that is participating with it. Part of our participation is investigating, is it pleasant or unpleasant? The bringing this intention of friendliness, of kindness, even to, and especially to the unpleasant sensations or thoughts or sounds.
all of the unpleasant sensations, thoughts, emotions, sounds, provide us with the opportunity to become more tolerant, more merciful, more compassionate. The more we're mindful of our experience when it's unpleasant, the more we wake up to the reality that it's not what's happening that is the problem, it's our relationship to it. It's not the pain in the knees or the buzzing in the hallway or even the thoughts or emotions that are here, but it's how aversive, how entangled we become with the experience. The participation that is being requested, required, is to tolerate what it's like right now. These sounds, these sensations, these thoughts.
I think it's the um, one of the chairs that's making that buzzing sound out there. If uh, Jason, you want to, you checking it? I think you have to turn the key off. That's like down at the base. It might be a switch. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Could be the microwave. I really love this um, perspective that what we're trying to do, what we're doing in this kind of meditation is uh, we're trying to uh, have a relationship to what's happening that's not so uh, tangled up in it. To know what's happening and have a relationship to it, not, not, not a distant, you know, sometimes there's this quality of like, I'm observing and sometimes we can get a little too disengaged, a little too far, like, but a, a closeness to our mind, to our body, to our breath, that's connected without being attached, without being entangled in it. And, uh, and, and as you heard in the meditation instruction, uh, that I'm borrowing from Ajahn Amaro, one of my teachers, a Buddhist monk for over 40 something years. I think he must be coming up on close to 50 years as a monk. And, and this image of unentangled participation with your experience rather than being your experience. Like when we're identified, your mind is thinking and you're lost in the thought and I am thinking about the future and you're all tangled up in the plan. I'm fucking in it, in the fantasy or in the past, in the memory, in the resentment, anger, fear. Um, and, you know, ultimately he's also probably referring on some level of even when you're present, being super tangled up in the I am present. <laughs> <laughs> having all of this sort of like self-identification with I'm the one who's present. And, um, and you know, I love it. I, you know, play with it, think about it, see if it fits for you as you are mindful of your breath, your body, your mind, of the unentangled. And then I can see my, uh, development with meditation practice that in the beginning I was totally and completely ensnarled, entangled, identified with everything my mind did and everything I, my body experienced. And that was me and I was entangled in it. And then over the years of meditation, that there was a little kind of a loosening of some of the knots and a, a relaxing of some of the and so I just had the, you know, um, obviously I don't have any hair, no dice. It wasn't around. And I turned the key, but I, I can just try to unplug it. You could unplug it. I don't even know if that's gonna work, but. Um, oh, I was gonna say, I don't, you know, don't have any hair, but I, the, the thought arose in my mind that, uh, you know, like a detangler, you know, like I guess there's sprays that you can put on if your hair gets tangled <laughs> and it's sort of like, you know, conditioner or whatever, like detangles 
that mindfulness kind of works like that. Like, well, how do we break our addiction to our minds, our identification, our entanglement, our, you know, being all snarled up and taking everything personal and um, being aversive towards the unpleasant and craving and greedy and attached to the pleasant. And how does this whole thing work? And part of how it works is by just doing what we're doing, bringing our attention inward, paying attention to the breath, to the body. There's like a mindfulness is a detangler. It's not like you have to untangle yourself. If you just sit regularly and do these instructions, you just keep coming back to the meditation practice, there's a process that takes place. And unfortunately, it takes years, I think. Uh, you see some progress in the beginning. Some of you are in your first year of meditation and you see like, oh shit, it's working a little bit, it's helpful. But um, then, you know, in the second year and the third year and the fifth year and the 10th year, you start to see, oh, wow, like I'm a lot more relaxed about what happens than I used to be. I used to be tight. I used to be tense. I used to be entangled with my experience. And the mindfulness practice is a detangler. <laughs> um, and a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And um, if you don't, if that doesn't resonate, that's okay. And, uh, but my sense is that anybody that continues to meditate will start to feel this like, just like relaxing around the unpleasantness. You get more tolerant towards the unpleasantness. Uh, you get less... Uh, entangled with the cravings, you kind of, you, you, you know the impermanence more clearly. And, and so, and it's not theoretical. It's not like, yeah, I read that in a book and it makes sense or heard it in a Dharma talk and it makes sense. It's a, a kind of the definition of insight is an internal knowing. Like you know it in your uh, direct experience. And we have this wonderful opportunity <laughs> of the, um, I don't know if you guys can hear it at home, but the, there's a, a chair, these uh, chairs that, that come up the stairs. What? Chairs, I can't figure out what it is. Oh, it's not the chair. I thought it was the chair, but anyways, there's something buzzing in my stairwell every minute or so. Um, okay, so, I want to ask you a question, and I'm going to, you know, segue this into a talk, of course, but I think it's interesting to engage our own, our own minds. And so it's a, it's a big sort of general question, um, and I'll try to get more specific with it, but the, the opening part is uh, reflect for a couple of minutes on what do you, uh, what do you know for sure? Like, what are you certain about? And like maybe make a like make a list. Like what's what are you sure about? Certain that and I guess you know it's kind of like certain is true. Like what do you know? What do you what's the truth? What are you what are you certain about? So like every like every opinion that you have, you. <laughs> 
<laughs> everything that you think. I feel like a lot of people are sort of wired like that. A lot of humans are like, well, just whatever I think, that's the truth. I'm just certain about my views and opinions and attitudes and outlooks, like whatever I, I think, that's what's true. If you agree with me, great. And if you don't, you're wrong. I'm for sure right. And everybody else is unfortunately confused. And what's it feel like to be certain, to be right, to know the truth? Like on the, that list that you have, the top tens, I know this, this much I know is true. I'm certain about it. And again, just, as, just for your reflection of like, what does it feel like when you're right? And you know. And, and that, um, uh, you know, there's both the sort of certainty of I'm right, but I don't have a big agenda of anybody else agreeing with me. Just the sort of inner knowing, you have that some, that's kind of certainty, your own inner knowing. Um, and it's not in conflict with other people's, like it's just your knowing, just what you're certain about, which is a little bit different than when it becomes conflict and someone else is has a different a contradictory view and they are certain that they are correct and you're certain that you are correct <laughs> and we're both you know we take this uh wait a minute how could we can't both be right we disagree one of us has to be wrong so the question that one of the questions that came up the other the other day um, that I wrote down was just the word uncertainty. Uncertainty from a Buddhist perspective. What is the role of uncertainty? And so I'm kind of taking it from this other uh, angle, which is like, what about certainty? Like what, what can we know for sure? And what is it healthier to kind of acknowledge uncertainty around? Um, My mind goes a bit to uh, right and wrong. I have a little bit of uh, black and white thinking sometimes. What's right, what's wrong. Uh, maybe one of the reasons I like Buddhism, I like Buddhism for a lot of reasons, but uh, it does occur to me that, you know, looking at the traditional way of, the, of, of teaching the Buddha's Eightfold Path, is this is the right way to do it. <laughs> right understanding, right intention, right speech, right livelihood, a right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, not just mindfulness. You gotta do mindfulness the right way or you're fucking up. Right concentration. And there's this sort of, you know, spiritual or, or religious certainty of like, this is definitely the right way to go. And although I approached 
Buddhism with a lot of skepticism and uncertainty and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of desperation. I do think that there was something comforting about the confidence in the, that, that, that was presented in the Four Noble Truths, in the Eightfold Path. This is the noble, not just truth, not just like, you know, kind of uh, mundane, uh, you know, um, casual truth. This is a noble truth of suffering. And I was like, okay, wait, I'm suffering, I'm paying attention because I'm suffering. The truth of suffering, the noble truth of suffering. And I was like, okay, you know, my mind says, oh, that, that shit makes sense. And the dude was certain. He <laughs> <laughs> wasn't wishy-washy about it at all. He didn't say like, maybe some of us sometimes suffer. He just came right out and said, I'm an enlightened being and here's the way it is. All of us suffer. And I looked at my own subjective experience and I was like, well, it's true about me. Is it true about you? Certain, certainly. I mean, are you, are you, <laughs> are you certain that everyone suffers? I feel like that one's kind of easy. Although maybe you ever find yourself thinking like maybe I suffer a lot more than everyone else. But yeah, maybe everybody has a bad day once in a while, but I feel like I'm having sort of a bad decade or bad incarnation. Um, and some, some people look so happy and you kind of think like, well, maybe, maybe they don't suffer. Like maybe some people are actually just like, okay and happy and compassionate. Oh, just like naturally. Um, so like this, this presentation of Buddhism, there's a lot of certainty, like right? everyone suffers. And then second noble truth. And this is, took me a little bit more to get my mind around. I was like, well, I, why am I suffering so much? I don't know what's wrong with me. And then the Buddha says, well, you wanna know why you're suffering so much? Certainly the cause of your suffering is your craving for pleasure. And then having to reflect on that. Hmm. Do I ever suffer <laughs> about anything other than craving for pleasure? Which also means aversion to pain, which also means clinging, which also means self-centered, I, me, mine, clinging. And then we look at our experience and we're like, oh, this is certainly true. The only time we suffer is when we're meeting what's happening with aversion or clinging, right? And so we put both aversion and clinging under the umbrella of craving, craving for that fucking buzzing to stop. <laughs> craving for... Uh, my mind to be less abusive, less critical, less something or other, craving for, and you know, we can 
make a long list of what we are aversive to and we want more of this and we want less of that. And And then the third, so, you know, kind of certainty. Buddhism gives us this, like, this is the way it is. No debates. Now, here's the nice thing I, I like about it. That's that, or at least early Buddhism, I think, you know, the, the religion, Buddhism became a religion and it got pretty fucked up, I think. Mm. Like all religions. And started like judging you for you know whether you were bowing right or how well you kind of clothes you were wearing and you know like just all kinds of bullshit religious dogmatic you know like religion sucks including buddhist religion um but originally it was this really sort of open i think the way that i maybe that's a fantasy but my my kind of ideas of early buddhism where the buddha would show up and he would say, this is the way it is. You want to know the truth? I'm going to tell you the truth. Suffering, the cause of suffering. And then the really good news, we can end suffering with total certainty, with total confidence. Human beings have the power, have the ability, have the uh, potential to stop clinging, <laughs> to break our addiction to our minds. It's possible to get free, to get awake and respond and this certainty. And he'd say, this is the way it is. Here, you wanna know how to do that? Have the under right understanding, have the right intentions, the right actions, the right livelihood, the right Mindfulness, not just, you know, bullshit, uh, you know, some sort of app mindfulness, <laughs> not some bullshit mainstream American, like five minute mindfulness. That shit's not going to work for liberation. I, and I will talk shit all day about secular mindfulness and I'm a fan of it. You know, like it's not going to get you what the Buddha promised for sure, but it's still a great thing to do. Like most people aren't even looking for liberation. So if you're just looking for some relaxation, awesome. Mindfulness is, you know, bullshit American secular mindfulness. Great, if that's what you're looking for. Now, if you're looking for the third noble truth, you're not gonna find it on an app. You're not gonna get it in a five minute meditation. It's a deep commitment to practice if you want to take this all the way. So certainty, so there, oh, and there, okay, I lost, but lost my train talking shit. Um, but that setup of like, this is the way it is, but then every talk, every time he would say, but don't take my word for it. Find out for yourself what's true. So there was no need to defend or to, uh, and he would actually, I wanted to say to argue, but he would argue with people. He, I feel like the Buddha was absolutely willing to have conflict and debate and an open discussion, but he would just say like, you know, 
this is what's true. You, a lot of your beliefs are deluded and ignorant. <laughs> you know, like if, you, if could you imagine if if we showed up like that with just that level of confidence and just be like, I'm fucking right, and you're just stupid. You wouldn't have many friends. But, you know, he was actually awake and we're not, right? He had enough wisdom that he could just say, like, I know this for sure from my direct experience. And uh, these other spiritual teachings are a dead end. They don't work. This works. And he said, I've, you know, from what he was aware of, um, he was certain because he had done a deep dive into practicing the other things that he was introduced to. He had practiced, you know, the kind of yogic, Hindu, early Vedic uh, paths, the gurus, you know, he had studied, he'd done it. And he's like, shit doesn't work. And I, you know, the, 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 the highest gurus told me they had taught me everything that they could and uh, that I was enlightened. And he's like, but internally, I was not enlightened. I was still attached. I was still craving. I was still deluded. And it wasn't until mindfulness turning towards the, you know, using this right mindfulness, which is not a detached observation, but as Ajahn Amaro says, this unentangled participation with our experience. He's like, when I learned to do that, to be unentangled, uh, intimate with my own mind, with my emotions, with my sensations, he said, that's when I found freedom. And I'm certain because I, it worked directly. I know it. So there's these truths that we can be certain about. When I ask that question to you, my own mind, uh, you know, kind of what are you certain about? And so some of the Dharma stuff came up for me, like, yeah, I'm certain that everything's impermanent. I don't, I feel pretty certain about that. Um, so my mind did some Dharma kind of list, the stuff that I've experienced and learned in Buddhism. But then I also, my mind got a little political and kind of uh, social justice. My mind was like, I'm certain that racism is always wrong. Always, I'm certain that sexism is always wrong, always. Uh, and, then, and then I'm certain that uh, any kind of malicious uh, oppression, you know, kind of intentional malicious causing harm to each other is the wrong way to go. I'm certain of that. I don't think, I, you know, there's no debate. There's no like, well, sometimes, once in a while it's cool. It's like, no, no, like this is always wrong. This is always ignorance, it's always confusion. I'm not denying that it exists, I'm acknowledging that it exists, but with a kind of certainty that uh, it's coming out of deluded, confused, ignorant views. And I'm certain about that. Um, so I guess the question, maybe the second question is like, what should we be, certain about where's a healthy level of skepticism when it comes to like if you're new to buddhism because uh, i i encourage you to uh you know really like don't don't become religious don't start believing this shit 
question it. Um, don't think it's true just because it's in the books or because I'm saying it or like question it, reflect on it. Like, does this, does this really make sense? And as, as uh, the Buddha famously said to um, this one group that he came into that questioned him and said, why should we believe you? Uh, and he said, well, don't believe me. He said, find out for yourself based on your own direct experience. Does this teaching lead to the end of suffering? Practice it, develop it, uh, see for yourself. Does it, you know, and he said, do that with every teaching you hear, you know, like, uh, don't just dismiss the other religions, you know, without some, you know, contempt prior to investigation, like investigate them a little bit and say like, uh, does that make any sense? Let me try it. What's prayer feel like? What is, you know, <laughs> let me try that. How does that feel? Does that feel like it helps me not suffer? Uh, does it feel true? Does it feel um, so that encouragement to like uh, find out for ourselves, bring some level of healthy skepticism to the table, but then also allow yourself to be confident and and somewhat certain in the and the levels of, I don't know, I feel like the, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the three characteristics, the, the more I've studied and practiced Buddhism, the more I'm just like, this shit is true. This shit works. This shit is uh, undeniable. I'm certain about it, my direct experience. Okay, so, but then the other side is, but what should we be uncertain about? Not certainly, <laughs> certainly not all of our views and opinions. Certainly not all of our uh, attitudes and outlooks are trustworthy. The more you meditate and, and look at your own mind, the more you see how full of shit your own mind is. Yet, you ever find yourself in the middle of an argument with somebody so convinced that you're right, <laughs> totally losing all of your wisdom about like, uh, I'm often wrong, but this time, pretty sure I'm right. Looking back on my life, I can see so many times that I argued with people and I was wrong, but this time, <laughs> I'm certain. We're all, are you pretty much always certain? I know there's different personality types and different attitudes and different levels of sort of security. And I mean, I've, there's probably some people that feel like, well, I'm always wrong and to make an identity out of, I'm never right. I'm always wrong. There are three, so here's the, another part of the other, the aspect, which is there are three characteristics of all conditioned phenomena. So everything, everything that happens inside of you and outside of you, so everything in the world and everything that happens in your body and your mind and your, are subject to 
three truths. And the Buddha was quite certain about this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, said, hey, check these three things out. Is there anything that you've ever experienced or experiencing right now that is not impermanent? Right? The truth of impermanence, the characteristic that all phenomena internally and externally is constantly changing, is impermanent. And, you know, some structures like this building that we're in or uh, seem kind of permanent. They're like, wow, this building was built in 1950. Here we are, you know, 70 years later. And it's still here. It seems kind of like a permanent structure. <laughs> but you just have to take a longer view when it comes to impermanence. Um, eventually, this building will crumble. And it might take hundreds of years, but it is impermanent. And even the structure itself is um, slowly falling apart. Shit's just buzzing in the hallway for no reason. <laughs> She's falling apart. Looking at the windows back there behind you where there's like wood slats. It used to be wood slats and they've just fallen off. <laughs> just in, you know, the windows are falling apart. Just slowly decaying like everything else. But the, so you know that you get, you get impermanence, everybody. Anybody want to debate impermanence? <laughs> it's kind of hard to debate, right? Like everything. It makes sense, right? It's just like, it's sort of common sense, but obviously we're not in tune, in harmony. We're not awake to impermanence or like how much shit would you not do if you really were awake to impermanence? If you were really awake to like, this is not going to last, would you still? So many things, long list of things. Uh, and the biggest thing of all is if we were really awake to impermanence, we wouldn't get attached to anything. Because soon as we cling to impermanent thoughts, feel, you know, even the internal emotions and thoughts and aversion that that entanglement with the sounds with the if we really knew it was impermanent we would just let it be we wouldn't cling we wouldn't try to control so much we just let it arise and pass and we wouldn't suffer if we were really awake when we are really awake to impermanence and we have developed compassion for the unpleasant, impermanent <laughs> experiences that we're constantly faced with in this human form. The second characteristic connected with uh, impermanence is probably what this question was really about. <laughs> now that I've spent a half hour setting up the question, which was really about um, the truth that everything's impermanent, which makes all conditioned phenomena 
uncertain or unreliable or unsatisfactory, sometimes translated as uncertain. Because it's impermanent, how can anything be certain? How can anything be worth clinging, any view be worth clinging to, any as certain, as true? And there's a big encouragement in uh, a lot of different Buddhist teachings and schools to uh, be a bit relaxed and a bit um, uh, humble about what you think you know is true. Uh, There's the Zen teaching of uh, try to have a beginner's mind. Don't be so certain. Don't try to be an expert. Don't be a know-it-all. Try to be uh, humble and like a beginner. Try to have the beginner's mind. I was talking about Ajahn Amaro and his teacher, the lineage holder, uh, founder of of his Thai forest lineage, Ajahn Chah, uh, would often use the term, I don't know what the, I forget what the Thai word is, but um, it translates as uncertain. It's uncertain, it's unreliable. What, you know, whenever, you know, people would ask <laughs> about anything It'd be like it's, uncertain. <laughs> it's uncertain. Sometimes it would just be like, but also that mixture. And I love this mixture. And I'm always trying to find this balance in my own life. And I like, we all are of confidence and uncertainty, confidence and humility. Um, and being able to, Uh, understand that everything's impermanent and that uh, more will be revealed and uh, that it's quite dangerous to get too fixed in I'm right. They're wrong. And, but also we don't want to get too flaky, right? We want to have that confidence of like certain things are just obviously fucking wrong. And some things are just obviously fucking right. Um, I think I picked this. It was at the top of pretty close to the top of the list, but I, I picked this because I had a very challenging conversation for over an hour today with some friends um, about some kind of structural um, uh, policies for a community that we're both involved in. And they were very certain. They had some views and they're just totally, totally certain that they, they know the right thing to do for these policies. And I have a different opinion. I have a different view. And uh, I guess I'm kind of certain too that I'm right. 
I feel a little bit of humility of like, fuck, I don't know what to do about these like policies for communities. And, but what makes sense to me is A, I could be wrong, but like, I think that A is probably the right way to go. And then talking to some friends that are like, no, you're for sure wrong, 100% you're wrong, B and C has to be B and C or everything's going to be destroyed. If it's, you know, if you don't choose B and C, like you're fucked. And I'm like, hmm, but B and C don't make sense to me. And they're so certain. You ever been in that dilemma? I find myself in that dilemma kind of a lot. <laughs> Where I'm like, well, and so with a, the uncertainty of like, fuck, I could be wrong. I might be wrong. They might be right. And that's, that's always helpful for me to just try to have that kind of, let me put myself over there. Maybe they're right. Let me really try that on. Let me, how does that feel? I mean, maybe they're right. having some personal uh, uncertainty. But I've got the kind of a mind that's a bit arrogant and that's a bit kind of like, okay, I'm gonna pretend like they might be right, but for sure they're wrong, I'm right. <laughs> We're pretty sure at least. Pretty sure that my view is the right view. <laughs> you know, and then you start to, um, uh, and we were both doing this, like we were pulling out the examples. I'm like, well, it, this organization does it this way. And well, this organization does it this way. Well, this harm was caused over here if you did it that way. Well, this harm was caused over here if you do it this way. And we were both kind of like trying to gather evidence, you know, trying to kind of bolster up your argument. This is what I believe and why I believe it and why I'm right with the sort of jabs of like, and why you're wrong. It'd be so much easier, like, you know, I talked all that shit about the Buddha's confidence. It'd be so much easier if I, like, if you were actually enlightened and you could trust your mind and you just know, <laughs> like, what I know is that I'm not enlightened and that I can't always trust my mind and that I've made so many mistakes and made so many of the wrong decisions in the past that it makes me a little less confident in making big decisions. But that dilemma that we're all, all in, where you still have to make a decision. You still have to do what you think is right at the time. With the humility of like, might be wrong. You still gotta do what you think is right in that moment, especially when it's, um, when it's your responsibility. And this is a, a situation where it's like my responsibility to make this decision on, on a lot of levels. One of the things I've really woken up to, and I don't know how much this connects with the topic of unreliability, but I'm sitting with it. I'm ran, it's, it's like, it's really here. Like I'm sitting with it tonight and the kind of reverberations of this conversation I had today. Um, and as I look at my Dharma practice and um, not just my meditation, but also like 
as a teacher and somebody that's uh, developing communities and against the stream and refuge and and this line that I haven't been great at, but like, but that I'm trying to get better at and that I'm committed to getting better at, which is this line between non-attachment and irresponsibility. Because I've spent a lot of my life, uh, what I think as I look back on some of the mistakes I've made, uh, where I feel like, oh, I was irresponsible. And I thought I was being non-attached. And I thought, because I, I could have these sort of conversations like I had today where I'd be like, well, I don't really, I'm not attached. So just do it your way. Maybe you're right. Even though in my mind, I was like, oh. but I'm going to practice non-attachment and let you make the decisions. And then I, and I, that way I don't have to take any responsibility. <laughs> I'm going to let you fuck it up. Okay. And, um, and I feel so... Maybe this is too much about me, and I don't know if you can relate to it, but I'm just really trying to find that balance of taking responsibility without being too attached, right? A non-attached. You hear me talk about um, the wisest relationship to pleasure is non-attached appreciation. So I'm trying to develop this this view of like the wisest uh, response, you know, uh, relationship to responsibility is like a non-attached decisiveness, <laughs> like uh, a non-clinging responsibility, like taking not, not a non-attached sort of avoidance, but a non-attached engagement back to Ajahn Amaro's an unentangled participation with our uh, decisions that we have to make. I don't know, I felt like I went on a bit of a tangent there, but I did it. So what are your thoughts about certainty, uncertainty? What are your questions, comments? We have a few minutes for some interaction. Uh, if you're here in the room, you can just raise your hand. If you're at home, down in the, I think, reactions and under the participants, there's a way to raise your hand. I see Emily Miller. Go ahead and unmute yourself. And um, Something you said, I'm recovering from an upper respiratory infection that's not COVID, thank God. Um, anyway, um, if you can hear me all right, the question I had was a very good friend of mine recently, like in 2020, taught me the difference between the concept of selfishness and self-centeredness. And then you use the term like self-centered. I noticed that coming a lot in these Dharma talks and other ones. So I think it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on the differences between selfishness and self-centeredness. Does that make sense? It does make sense, but I don't think I, um, I don't think I have a bit, a, a really great um, distinction or definition between selfish and self-centered. Uh, I'd like to hear yours, you know, what your friend told you. I'd love to hear what your, the distinction between selfishness and self-centeredness, but I'll, I'll tell you that I use self-centered a lot 
because it's, I feel like it's an easy way to point to uh, this core teaching from the Buddha. I talked about three characteristics. Um, and I only really talked about the first two. I said, well, everything's impermanent and then everything's unre unreliable or unsatisfactory. The third one is, is that everything is um, not self. <laughs> And that so much of our suffering is because we take it as self. We, we you know, our self-centeredness, we take everything personal. So I use self-centered uh, as uh, pointing to the Buddha's teaching that part of our liberation is learning that there is not a solid, separate, continuous self to be so attached to. So Emily, what is your uh, definition, the difference between selfish and self-centered? Well, the context of this is my friend uh, met her in rehab, Relevance. She is a uh, very much a God-fearing Christian woman. So it was a very interesting for me as a Unitarian Universalist and Buddhist to come up with this insight from her in my perspective, which just means so much on how much we can take from other religions and faiths. Um, so it was like... Selfish isn't a bad thing. Selfish is focusing on yourself and your own needs. Whereas self-centeredness is like that malicious, addictive focus on only what provides you pleasure. I get it. I hear, I hear that. Yeah, and you know, when we're talking about selfish versus, uh, you know, there's a lot of conversation these days about self-care and, you know, healthy self-esteem and, um, and there's a difference, right? There is a difference between selfish, self-centered behavior and just being kind to yourself and just like taking good care of yourself. And um, I think especially in our shame-based Judeo-Christian culture, there's a lot of people that feel like, fuck, if I do anything nice for myself, it's overindulgent. And it's mm. so selfish that I did, you know, I got a massage. I feel so much shame that I was so selfish when I could have been working at the soup kitchen and I just got a massage and I'm a terrible person. Um, you know, like there's a, there's a, there's room for a not, you know, kind of, taking care of ourselves in a healthy way. That's not always selfish. Other thoughts, questions, comments? Kind of piggyback off of that. Um, how much time did you spend? I, I've done a couple silent meditation retreats. Um, and I like I've done a lot some Vipassana 10 day silent courses. And by the end, I'm like, I'm in this like Zen state that I'm just like, oh, I'm, I've let go of my attachments to everything. And I'm just like floating on another planet, you know what I mean? And then like, I just start driving back into LA and my phone's got 20 text messages. And I'm like, and I have this like breakdown where I'm like, I just want to move to the mountains and become a, a, a monk and just sit and meditate all day and like let go of all my attachments to everything you know and but then i'm like well no you were you were born in la your family's in la you know you have this like base and you should learn to live in this in this place where you were and be able to like 
coke <laughs> you know what i mean or or is it like what like with selfishness like i don't know i, I guess i just kind of question like how much you know because you can't really take care of other people so you can take care of yourself you know and so it's it's just i i question that a lot of like you know like should i just move to the mountains and become a monk you know what i mean or like or how much time did you spend you know like really working on yourself i guess i mean i had a lot of those same thoughts uh, in my early years of practice of like, I, maybe, maybe the monk kind of retreat life is the best way to go. Um, I did my first retreat when I was about 19. And then, um, you know, did a bunch of retreats in my early 20s. And then at about 25, I went to, and I spent a couple years celibate. And I did sort of like a pseudo monastic householder kind of thing where I was like vegan, straight edge, celibate, sugar-free, you know, I, I did that thing in my early twenties. And then, um, and I guess when I was about 25, I went to the monastery in Thailand for the first time with a real kind of like, maybe I'll go and become a monk and, um, some question about it anyways, like, at least I'm going to visit. And it was my first time in Asia. And I was like, I was at Ajahn Chah's at like the place. And, um, and I thought, well, maybe I should just do that. That's kind of same calling that I'm happiest when I'm on retreat kind of feeling, but, uh, I'm also like, um, really miss punk rock shows and sex and, you know, delicious food and, you know, that kind of sensual, you know, call to the Dharma, but also call to the sensual world and, um, and I lasted three days at the monastery and I was like, I'm fucking out of here. <laughs> well, there's also this sort of thing of like, if you're gonna stay longer than three days, you have to shave your eyebrows. Oh, wow. And like, you know, you're like sleeping on some wood floor and they're like, if you're gonna stay for longer than three days, you have to like, they want you to prove some renunciation. I was already at a shaved head. So it was no, it was like, you have to shave your head and your eyebrows. It's a Thai tradition, forest tradition thing. And I was in, to be honest, there was this really cute girl that was at the monastery that was leaving. And I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, where are you going? I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna go, <laughs> can I jump on that bus with you? <laughs> um, so that call to, uh, you know, intensive like retreat practice or monastic practice, um, it's to be honored, I think, and, and explored and investigated. Um, I had the experience similar to what you're referring to. You know, there was all kinds of like, I wasn't ready. Like for me, I was 25. I wasn't ready um, at that time. And But I also had this internal feeling of, like you were saying, like my maybe my work is in the world. Um, and I had this feeling of like, I'd be kind of like trying to avoid something by doing the monastic route. Um, and then I feel like I have a lot to learn about intimacy. I have a lot to learn about relationships. Uh, I wanna be a parent at some point. I feel like I, and I from, a, from a young, uh, you know, from my twenties, I was like, I wanna be a father. Like that, I feel like that's part of my practice here in this lifetime is to have children and to, um, so there's all, you know, lots of levels going on. But that second part of your question of, how much training 
you know, all through my 20s and 30s and 40s, I've done retreats. I've continued to do retreats and have a regular meditation practice and, um, and do my best, as you're talking about, to integrate it into the world, not just on retreat into relationships and into traffic and <laughs> into, and it's, you know, it's one of the reasons why I opened urban meditation centers in San Francisco and New York City and Los Angeles, because this is where we practice, right? Like there's one thing like to go out into the woods and practice and be in silence and have this rarefied, concentrated experience that you can't really replicate cruising through Venice Right. Like you said, you come off a retreat and the phone. And so like this, for me, like this is the Dharma, right? This is retreats important. Like I'm a fan of retreat, but we take those insights and we bring them into our life and into the world. And we suffer a little bit, but also like just get good at suffering. Right? <laughs> like we have to deal with annoying sounds like that. What an opportunity <laughs> to just like get good at unpleasant things and difficult situations and difficult conversations and being as mindful as possible. So I don't know if I'm fully answering your question, but I think the reality of my, I've been meditating for 33 years now and pretty half-assed kind of most of the time but consistently half-assed <laughs> for 33 years, right? <laughs> like, uh, I'm not one of those guys that like, I do two hours a day, you know? I'm like, you know, I meditate sometimes, most of the time, sometimes I don't meditate, but I try to like bring my uh, awareness to it. And I try to be kind, I try to be compassionate, you know? And I get on the cushion regular and I still, you know, regularly try to every year get on a retreat and go sit with one of my teachers and study and, um, you know, stay in the game. You don't really graduate. I heard, um, I remember hearing it and not really liking it, that uh, Joseph Goldstein, who's a wonderful teacher and one of my teachers, you know Joseph's work at all? No. He's a great teacher, but he's like one of the founders of the Western Insight, you know, thing. And I remember hearing him saying, like, even after 40 years of meditation, I feel like I've just scratched the surface. And uh, there's so much more to know and so much more. And I felt like, oh, that's nice humility, but it's also sort of disappointing. 40 years and you just scratched the surface? Fuck that. Like, I thought this shit actually works. <laughs> I know you're just trying to be humble and everything, but I would hope that after 40 years, you'd have some depth of ability to <laughs> embody this shit you've been practicing for four decades. Um, and I don't know how much depth I have, but what I know is that I suffer so much less than I used to. And it keeps lessening and lessening over the years of practice. I used to suffer most of the time. And now, most of the time, I don't suffer. I still suffer sometimes, but most of the time, I don't. Judy, please, last one. Last one. Okay, so what I've noticed through the years that I've been doing this, and I'm conflicted because I've come to a point now where really, maybe because I don't have a job, I really don't give a shit what anybody does. 
And that way is that I, I don't have too much passion to fight. You know, I don't want to fight. I don't want to have a, a, a thing. But then I'm, I'm in Mexico and my niece is like making me crazy because of whatever her thing is. And then she tells me, she says, you're just, just too calm. You know, like she's feisty and I'm like, God, it's all about you and this and that. And I was like, but I really don't care. And then she looks at me she's, and, and then you have no fight in you at all. I'm, so I, I don't, I have these issues with my family that, okay, you can think whatever you want. I don't care, you know? Although there's times where I really do want to fight and I just don't. And I see that in myself, and I and I don't know if I if I really like that either, being so calm or not caring. Um, so I struggle. I, I struggle with that. Is like when do I? What is important enough for me to fight? And so and recently I've noticed that there's not much. Yeah. Can I touch on that? When you were saying like A situation, B situation. Like who was right? Yeah, it, it flew me back to Twelve Angry Men, where it's a courtroom situation, and this guy comes from the Psalms. Eleven of them said he's guilty. One of them said it's impossible that he stabbed this guy. And by the end of the thing, you talk. Everybody went, "No, you're right. He's innocent." But the one man held his ground. Right. So I didn't know where you were going with that. You were saying A and B. You know, go with the majority or hold your ground that you're right and you believe you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's the question, right? Like, are we the 12th juror or are we in the 11 other ones that are ignorant, <laughs> that are wrong? Like, we have to have that sort of humility over like, fuck, I think I always think I'm right. But am I? You know, like everybody else thinks they're right too like how do we find our way with this but why do you have to be right well just if there's a decision to be made mm -hmm. right you want to make the right decision the best the healthiest the most skillful decision should we turn right or left it's like you actually have to make a decision <laughs> are we going to turn right or left and i'm like well i'm pretty sure it's that way and you know people going like no for sure left 100 percent left for sure hmm. but I, all right i don't know we're going right maybe we'll get lost let's see what happens because <laughs> i'm driving <laughs> maybe it's having the humility to know that it could be one or the other and having those checks and balances or that comfort within or that i don't know what the word is but having that opportunity within ourselves to say let's keep checking back is this still sitting right with us that's for yeah. yeah and as a group sometimes that's, sometimes yes. as a group yeah dem democratic kind of sometimes but I like that example of like 12 people and the jury. It's a problem with groups. It depends on how much wisdom you have in your group and your jury. All right, we'll end it there tonight. It is nine o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Sorry, I didn't get to the hand that was raised on uh, line. 
Um, uncertainty. Sometimes it's a good thing. And um, do I have any announcements? We haven't got it up yet because we're still waiting for the price list, but there will be a seven day against the stream silent meditation retreat. I think it's October 10th through 17th. Those are the dates. It's in October. Um, it'll be open for registration soon. We're just waiting for the retreat center to give us the um, new, the updated pricing list so we can <clears throat> see how much they're going to charge us so we can see how much we're going to charge you. And we should have that hopefully in the next week or so. Um, Joshua Tree. Joshua Tree. Yeah. This class is done by donation. Um, please, if you're here, leave a donation in the bowl at the table, or you can Venmo donations. If you're at home, there's a link in the chat to the uh, website that'll take you to the Venmo or the PayPal or the however you want to donate online. And uh, classes freely offered, but we have lots of expenses to pay the rent. And um, so please give generously if you can. We are a nonprofit. Your donations are tax deductible. Please consider becoming a monthly donor to Against the Stream to support us. There's also classes here on Wednesday night, Jason's class on Wednesday. And then also on Friday, there's another Against the Stream online class with uh, Ward Robinson, so three classes a week right now. I'll try to schedule another day long pretty soon. And um, that's it for tonight. Many goodness that has been developed in our practice, in our discussion of the Buddha's Dharma, be gathered and shared outward with all beings everywhere. May each one of us awaken, heal, recover, and together may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.